as we turn our attention to God's Word now, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 14. So we are returning to our study in the Gospel of John this morning. And if you remember, and many of you won't because we had a long break for Christmas and all of that, uh, we left off kind of halfway through John chapter 14. So I'm going to jump right into it this morning by reading John 14 verses 15 to 31. This is what Jesus says here. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled." Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will, be no, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may, see, may know that I love the Father. Rise let us go from here. Well, it's a, a long passage. There is a lot that is in that passage. And I just want to say as we start out that back in the summer, uh, we did a summer series in the book of Proverbs. And that series was entitled Wisdom And. And the very first message in that series was a message that I entitled Wisdom And Planning. And I started that message by sharing with you one of my favorite all-time quotes. That quote came from Mike Tyson, who said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And I know that it resonated with many of you because in the weeks and months to follow, I had many people talk to me about it and say, you know, I can relate to that. I feel like I had this plan and I got this punch in the face and everything kind of changed. Well, I had, you know, I, you've had experiences with that. I've had experiences with, with that. I've had experiences, large ones and small ones, with that thing. And even this week, as I came to prepare this message, I had a small experience with that. Uh, we're in the Gospel of John. We're about two-thirds of the way through the Gospel of John. And in December, I mapped out the rest of this series, and I did a fine job with it. In fact... Uh, I mapped it out so well that on Easter Sunday, we will get to John chapter 20, the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, you couldn't time things better. It was a perfect plan. 
And then I sat down and looked at this passage and began to prepare this message. And I got, I didn't really get past verse 15 of this passage. Uh, In verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the kind of punch in the face verse in this passage. Now, there's a lot that is worthy of exploration in this passage, but I felt prompted just to camp out here for the entire message. Uh, And the reason for that is because I think the church in general, and our church in particular, needs to drill down into this idea. My only hesitation in doing that was messing up my perfect preaching plan. Now, in reality, we will cover a little more than just verse 15 because Jesus says something very similar three more times in this passage. So in verse 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then in verses 23 and 24, he says it again twice, really. He says there, there, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then verse 24 says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Now, this passage has a lot to teach us about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It has a lot to teach us about our relationship with the world and all of that. We could spend weeks just exploring some of those themes. So why am I focusing just on this one verse or just on these few verses out of this passage in John chapter 14? Well, part of the reason is because I think we never hear this. Now, maybe it's because we are afraid of scaring people off by setting the bar too high, or maybe it's because, you know, we want to make sure that we're not preaching a gospel that is salvation by works. But I would just say that the complete neglect of any emphasis on obedience is something that I've noticed to be on the increase in the time that I've been in ministry. Uh, Back in the 1990s, Philip Yancey wrote a book entitled, What's So Amazing About Grace? It was a well-written book. It was a much-needed book at the time that he wrote it. That book was about his own discovery of grace after having grown up in the legalistic culture of churches in the 1970s and 1980s. And that book became a bestseller for lots of reasons. It resonated with lots of people who had a similar experience to that. The legalistic era of the church was marked by that often quoted mantra, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't date girls who do, right? Something along those lines. Look, these are the things we don't participate in. We don't do that activity. We don't do this one. We stay away from these kinds of people. That's the essence of the Christian life. Just don't do these things. That was an unhealthy distortion of the gospel of grace. But, you know, I was at a conference uh, just a couple of years back, and at one of the sessions, uh, Philip Yancey was leading one of those sessions. The session was titled something like, What's so amazing about grace 25 years later? Something like that. And his message in that session was pretty much exactly what he had said in the book 25 years earlier. 
And I attended that session with a pastor friend of mine, and we both had the exact same response to it, which is that a lot has changed in the church in the last 25 years. A lot has changed in the culture in the last 25 years. And the issue in our day among churches is not so much the issue of legalism. The issue in many of our churches today is the issue of license. You just do whatever you want. Now, I'm not saying that legalism isn't out there or that you can't find legalistic people in the church, but I think we are a lot more apt to encounter license today. I mean, despite the fact that the New Testament says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord, we hear almost no emphasis on holiness. Despite the fact that Jesus says here, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We hear almost no emphasis on obedience today. We just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, well, you do you. I mean, live how you want. Do what you want. So let me give you my thesis statement for this message, and then we're going to set about to see if it is in fact true and what the implications might be. My my thesis is, is simply this. We cannot separate love for Jesus from obedience to Jesus. Let me say that again. We cannot separate love for Jesus from obedience to Jesus. And we do try to do that at times. There is a kind of low bar Christianity that exists out there. I mean, you had an emotional experience at summer camp at a point in time You made a profession of faith somewhere along the line. The thought of Jesus gives you sort of warm fuzzies. Well, that's good enough. That's all it takes. That's all that matters. That is not the gospel that Jesus or the apostles preached. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, is what Jesus says. Jesus didn't separate love for him from obedience to him, and neither should we. So that's my thesis. Let me try to develop that along two main lines. The first one is that obedience is the distinguishing mark of true discipleship. So maybe I have this wrong. I mean, maybe I'm just making too much of this one verse here in John 14 or these few verses in John 14. Is it true that obedience is the mark of true discipleship? Is that emphasis found elsewhere in Jesus' teaching or elsewhere in the New Testament? Now, the Gospel of John is sometimes referred to as the Gospel of Belief. John tells us that his express purpose in writing this Gospel was so that we might believe in Jesus. Here's the summary that he gives at the end or near the end of his Gospel. He says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That was John's thesis, or that was his purpose in writing, that we might believe, and that because of our belief, we would have eternal life, or have life in Jesus' name. The question is, what does it mean to believe? I mean, does it mean that we give mental assent to a, a few facts about Jesus? John actually uses that word believe almost a hundred times in the Gospel of John. And it is a bit of a loaded word. Embedded in that word is the idea of active trust. 
Now, I'm sure I pointed this out back when we were in John chapter 3, but I want you to listen to what we read in John 3, verse 36. Here's what Jesus says, or here's what it says there. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, just right away, you can see that those two lines are meant to be parallel. But if they're meant to be parallel, we would expect it to say, well, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But that's not what it says. What it says is, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Genuine belief is equated with obedience, or or genuine belief at least always leads to obedience. Now, John not only wrote the Gospel of John, but he also wrote a series of letters that we find in the New Testament. And when we read those letters, especially the letter of 1 John, we find this same emphasis. Here's what we read in, in 1 John chapter 2. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. See, obedience is the mark of true discipleship. So let me just take you to a couple of familiar passages outside of John's writings to see if that is the case. Is this, in fact, what the New Testament teaches us? Well, the end of Matthew's gospel contains what we often refer to as the Great Commission. You've heard it before. Here's what it says there. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, I'm not sure that observe is actually the best translation that we could have there, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It is a fine translation, but when we hear that word today, what we think is, well, observe means to to watch. So that the New American Standard Bible translates that same phrase as teaching them to follow everything I've commanded you. The NIV says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And that is the idea behind what Jesus says in commissioning his disciples. So how do we make disciples of all nations? Yes, it's by going. Yes, it's by baptizing. But we haven't really made disciples of Jesus unless we have taught them or until we have taught them to obey Jesus' commands. And this is not sort of an optional extra. There aren't two kinds of Christians. You know, there's the regular Christians, and then there are the Christians who are the disciples of Jesus. All Christians are disciples of Jesus, and a disciple is someone who obeys Jesus' commands. Let me take you to another familiar passage in the Gospel of Matthew, right at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus wraps that up, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in who is in heaven. 
right? Words alone do not prove anything about our salvation or our love for Jesus. Words can just be those things that we kind of hide behind. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah delivered a bit of a barn burner of a sermon in It's recorded for us in Jeremiah chapter 7. Listen to what he had to say to the people of his day. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land that I gave your ancestors forever and ever, But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Then he goes on to say, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. See, the people of Jeremiah's day had lots to say about their faith. They had this kind of mantra that they would repeat when they came to the temple. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That means we're safe. We got the right formula. And God declared that their professions of faith were meaningless because they were not accompanied by a godly lifestyle. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So, time out, right? Because some of you might be thinking, well, just look, wait a minute. Aren't we saved by grace and not by works? Aren't we saved by what Jesus did and not by what we do? Yes, absolutely. Ephesians chapter 2 teaches that with crystal clarity. But even there, we need to read the whole passage. Notice what it says in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And then it says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. The person who has been saved by the grace of God will respond with a life of obedience to God. And again, this is not a minor point of emphasis in the New Testament. Now we've looked at what Jesus says, what John says, what Paul says, and just in case we need another witness or another person to testify, listen to what James says. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, notice that James doesn't say, What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith, but what good is it if someone says he has faith? And what James is helping us understand, that it's not actually faith if our practice doesn't match our profession. So so let me give you a couple of parallel statements to show just how ridiculous the situation that James is describing would be. 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he is generous but never gives anything away? Or what good is it, my brothers, if someone says they love to read but never picks up a book or a magazine and actually reads? Or what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says they love to cook but never steps foot in the kitchen? Right? Like if I said that, if I stood up here and said to you, one of the things you ought to know about me is I love to cook. Now, my wife was in the first gathering. She's not in this one, but I can tell you what her reaction would be. Lee, we've been married for 27 years. And apart from barbecuing meat that I've marinated and heating up leftovers in the microwave, I've never seen you cook anything. So what good is it if someone says he has faith but has no accompanying works or actions? That's how ridiculous that would be. What good is that kind of faith? That's what James asks. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is it's no good. It's worthless. The second question he asks is, can such faith save him? And there's a way to ask a question in the Greek language that tells you what the answer is supposed to be in the question itself. It's a... a, rhetorical device. It demands a negative answer. Can such faith save him? No, it can't. In other words, the kind of faith that is limited to a verbal pronouncement, simply saying that you have it, cannot save a person. Now, I know I'm taking you on a whirlwind tour throughout the New Testament, but I think it's important for every one of us to know that obedience is the distinguishing mark of true discipleship. If you love me, You will keep my commandments, is what Jesus says. The second thing we need to know is that lasting obedience can only be fueled by love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I've been emphasizing the obedience part or the keeping his commandments part. But remember, my thesis is we cannot separate love for Jesus from obedience to Jesus. So you've heard many times, you know, that Christianity is not ultimately about rules, but about a relationship, right? It's not that there aren't rules or commandments to follow, but it is ultimately about a relationship with God. And it is our relationship with God that fuels our desire and our ability to obey what Jesus says, to keep his commandments. It's actually an emphasis all through the Bible. You can see it all the way back in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 contains the Ten Commandments. Many of you are familiar with, with them. The first four are kind of the vertical commandments that we, that we have. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then the next six commands are about the sort of the hor- horizontal relationships in our lives, right? That you're to honor your father and mother. You're not to commit murder. You're not to commit adultery. You're not to steal. You're not to bear false witness. You're not to covet. What sometimes gets missed in a discussion of the Ten Commandments is the preface or the preamble to them. Listen to what God says immediately before issuing the Ten Commandments. He says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So God begins the Ten Commandments by reminding the Israelites of what he has done for them. He reminds them about the nature of their relationship, that he is the one that has freed them from their slavery. And because of that, 
their response ought to be one of love. And the way they show that love is by keeping the commandments that he has given. And we actually see something similar here in John chapter 14. Now it might feel like we're parachuting into John chapter 14. We're not. It's just that we took that Christmas break. But think about what preceded, what came before Jesus saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Listen to the way John chapter 13 began. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, when we looked at that passage, I told you, and we saw that that phrase, he loved them to the end, was pointing to his death on their behalf. That's how much he loved them. He loved them enough to give up his life for them. Then at the end of John 13, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And I would just say that it is understanding the extent of Jesus' love for us that fuels our ability and our desire to keep his commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I want to say, I do not want you to hear this message as a sort of try harder and do better kind of message. I would just say, look, without love for Jesus, our best efforts to keep his commandments will fizzle. That's just what happens over time. When Jesus describes a great falling away, he says, the love of most will grow cold. And see, when that love grows cold, the activity stops. And this is what happens. I was, I was in the gym on January the 2nd. I have never seen it busier. I mean, the place was packed out. And I ran into a friend of mine there, a guy that I used to coach soccer with, and we're kind of the old guys in there. And, and you know, he came up, we were talking, just marveling at how busy it was. And he said to me, yeah, but you know what it will look like when February rolls around. And I do know what it will look like when February rolls. It'll be half as busy as it was. Now, I'm not against people making New Year's resolutions to to get in shape or setting fitness goals for a new year, but making resolutions can only take us so far. Love is a different thing altogether. See, when you love doing something, You need almost no encouragement to do that thing. Like these days around our house, if one of our kids, any one of our kids, or my wife, drops even the slightest hint that they want to get around a disc golf in, like I am there. I'm figuring out how to make that happen. That's how love works. When you love something, you you don't need the encouragement to do it. You're eager to do it. The same is true in relationships, right? When you love someone, I mean, you just figure out on your own how to make sure you spend time together, don't you? Maybe I should put a plug in for our marriage event that's coming up. (laughs) Lasting obedience 
can only be fueled by love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, now what does it look like when obedience is not fueled by love, but maybe a duty or some, something else? I think we see a great example of what that looks like in the parable that Jesus told about a prodigal son. Uh, you know the story. There was a, a, a son, he demanded his inheritance early from his father, and then he took that entire inheritance and squandered the whole thing on women, wine, and song. He got to such a low point in his life, he kind of hit rock bottom, living amongst the pigs. He looked at those pigs and said, they have a better life than I do. I'm going to go back to my father. And you know the story. There's this beautiful picture. The father sees him a great distance off. He opens his arm wide. He comes, hugs his son, welcomes him home, throws this great feast for him. A great celebration. The lost son has returned home. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace towards his wayward children. But there's also an older brother in the parable that Jesus told. And the older brother wasn't quite so pleased with the return of his wayward brother. Luke records his part in the story like this. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother is come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older brother teaches us that it is possible for us to stay home. It's possible for us to keep the father's commands and completely miss his heart. And sometimes we can check all the boxes, right? I mean, I go to church. I read my Bible. I even joined a community group thing. I give. I serve. I'm doing it all. But there's no actual love for Jesus. Right? There's no relationship. There's no heart. There's no passion. And this can happen to individuals and it can happen to churches. The book of Revelation contains seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, he says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There was much to commend about the church in Ephesus in the first century. They worked hard. They served faithfully, they endured patiently, and they were discerning about their doctrine. They tested those things. 
honestly, it sounds like a great church to be part of. It sounds like the kind of church we want Crossridge to be. But while there was much to commend about the church in Ephesus, there was one glaring omission. Jesus says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Or as other translations put it, you have forsaken your first love. Jesus ends each of the seven letters by saying, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I wonder if there's anyone here today that that's what they need to hear. What is the Spirit saying? Maybe what the Spirit is saying to you is that you've basically disregarded Jesus' commands. I mean, you're not living to please Him. You are living to please yourself. There's no obedience to what He says. You do what you want to do. Or maybe what the Spirit is saying to you is that you have neglected your first love. Your faith consists of going through the motions, going to church, experiencing fellowship, That's about it. There's no heart for Jesus. There's no closeness. There's no fire. Either way, the Spirit's call is the same. Repent and do the things you did at first. So we're going to move into a time of communion this morning, but I want to give you space to do just that today. Now, it might be that there are specific sins that you need to confess before the Lord. It might be that your heart has grown cold and you just need to pray to God about that. So I'm going to give you just a couple of moments, a moment or two just to pray to the Lord, and then we'll partake of communion together.